Welcome to Breaking the Mold, exploring the people and issues fueling business today. It's business time. It's business time. It's business. It's business time. And now, let's break the mold. Hello and welcome to episode number four of Breaking the Mold. This is Evan Roth, your co-host for the day, joined by my partner in many ways, Brett Barth. Happy to be here, Evan. Brett, it is nice to have you here in the studio. We spent a lot of time together uh, outside the studio, but I really haven't seen you like this. Sort Never of mic'd up, and yeah, we haven't had a I'm chance. I'm excited to be here. This is a, I appreciate you inviting me. I'm, well, I'm, I'm excited by the opportunity. Well, this is this is a, a, a great show. We'll uh, spend a little time talking about banks. Um, they've been in the news on a, f- a regular basis over the last four or five years. The certainly popular press has characterized the role of the banks as, as being the, the cause for the recession that we went through, the deep recession, and that uh, we're still paying uh, as an economy, as a global economy, for their issues. And kind of trying to break through that and try to parse it a little bit and see whether it's a, a legitimate claim or one where there's a more nuance to that. I thought Brett and I would spend a little time talking about banks. So where we are today um, is the news in, uh, among banks is that you, you're talking about executive compensation. You know, Jamie Dimon and his uh, today has... Uh, has learned that he has a, a pay increase from uh, from 2011. And this is in a year where Jamie Dimon is the CEO of J.P. Morgan. It's a year in which J.P. Morgan has paid $26 billion in fines to the federal authority. And the raise they got to was to $20 million. Not a bad take-home pay. Um, 2013 was $11.5 million. Over the last five years, he's been paid $70 million. So if you make the argument banks are to, you know, certainly blame or, or partly responsible for what we went through, hard to justify or justifiable for what his comp is? I think you could look at it both ways. One is running a very – having run very successfully, notwithstanding the fines, he was head of one of the largest, most complicated financial institutions pre-crisis, during crisis, and has persevered, and that institution has prospered, notwithstanding, uh, I think, the, the the fines they've paid. It's interesting. They've paid all that in fines and yeah. haven't missed a beat, and so that tells you a little bit about their strength. That takes a special person and special skills. At the same time, it's not quarterback for an NFL team as it relates to special and unique skills. RG3 is worth $70 million R- over five years? Uh, Peyton Manning is worth $70 million over five years. RG3, we hope, will someday be in— we we given away these skins fan, uh-huh. <laughs> in that in that realm. I think that it's it's questionable. But but at the end of the day, it's it's a free market. Mm-hmm. Um, no one is putting a gun to anyone's head at J.P. Morgan that they have to pay Jamie Dimon that amount. Yeah. Um, what role did he play? What role, you know, did, how, how well, let's ask this. It? You're right. Let's not ask about Jamie. What right. role did banks play? So I, I think people over-criticize the banks. The, mm-hmm. banks. the banks are a utility. Mm-hmm. The banks are the pipes of the financial system. And sometimes they get clogged, sometimes they burst, sometimes they run better, sometimes having more pipes is better. You know, you want the things to run smoothly. And by the way, having indoor plumbing is better than not having it if you want to live well and have uh, quality of life continue uh, and move upwards. And so I think people unfairly criticize the banks and particularly their role in the in the financial market. And they also, uh, you know, I'm biased. I'm someone who's worked at a big bank and 
uh, as is Harry, and I know he'll talk about that experience uh, when he comes on later. Um, but banks are pretty simple companies. I, I think of banks as lemonade stands, no, and they're selling if, lemonade if just like everybody else. If they're that simple, why do you need the vocal rule? Why do you need, you know, government, you know, there is a, I think the current, you know, legislation is now 7,000 pages mm-hmm. to look at trying to refine, reduce the amount of exposure that banks provide in this world. If it yeah. really, if there wasn't a multiplier effect of the yeah. damage that banks could do, there wouldn't be this, you know, need for, for legislation. I, I think it's exactly the same as to why you regulate other businesses. You regulate airlines. Airlines are for-profit companies. You want them, the airlines that provide the best service, the best times and the best prices you fly. At the same time, you've got the FAA who makes sure that every single one of those planes, hopefully, is su- you know suitable to fly and that the pilots are well-trained to fly them. The banks are independent companies that are providing services uh, and making money. At the same time, I think what we learned in 2008, and by the way, we learned this in the late 20s and early 30s, mm-hmm. uh, and there was something called Glass-Steagall that came about, which said that if you were a bank and you lent money, you couldn't be in uh, a trading business. And we actually repealed Glass-Steagall. And I think that's probably what led to the crisis. And I think the Volcker Rule is just a modern response to that, which is you can serve the role that you serve as a important utility in the economy and you can do it in your own interest. And I believe in that as a free markets person. But at some point you become too big to fail or you take on risky uh, activities that the providing those risky activities or being involved in those causes issues in the economy overall. And that's not in the public good. Mm -hmm. In the role, I'm not a complete free markets person. I believe, I think the FAA serves a very important role. I think the Volcker rule serves a very important rule, which says if you're going to be in this business and you're going to provide this necessary and important service to our economy, you've got to do it in a way where you're not taking undue and unnecessary risks that will cause the people of this country, the government, effectively to have to bail you out. True. Regulation, though, is always one step behind, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, and the question is, when does, you know, regulation kind of overstep its bounds? I, I think we, we both see the same thing, that the Volcker rule, which prohibits proprietary trading within mm-hmm. these banks, needs to be separated, therefore creating more stability within these institutions, which, as Brett said, should be more plain vanilla. But the question is, so when now you, what you see is, that regulation going one step further. So the European Commission, for example, just made a rule, which is that certain highly compensated uh, people at banks are not allowed to make more than their base salary in the form of bonus, right? Mm-hmm. Two times, right. right? So if you make $100,000 in base, you weren't allowed to make $100,000 in bonus. That is the bankers are smarter than the regulators. So they'll figure an, it away around. Article, it. Well, they, there's an article in the Wall Street Journal today describing how they've come up with a third way to pay folks, and I believe it was Goldman Sachs actually is at the forefront of this because I can assure you the guys working at Goldman Sachs who are getting well compensated are definitely one step ahead of the regulators. Yeah, let's just pick on Goldman for a second. So these kind of you know highly paid employees, up you know currently not affected by the rules yet, were paid eighty six million dollars in salary and $450 million in cash and stock bonuses. So you're at 5.2 times bonus in salary. So if they now they're gonna work make, around... Now they're going to give them, I believe it's variable pay of some sort that's not base but doesn't count as a bonus and they're going to get around it, which is why something like the Volcker Rule, I think, makes so much sense. Trying to come up with regulators who have to keep up with 
bankers is difficult because the regulators aren't going to keep up. It's is this a risky activity right. that we like versus this is a risky activity that we don't like? And how do you describe it to me versus the these are risky activities you are not allowed to do in any way, shape or form period, end of stop, is actually a better way to put a guardrail on the system than hope the regulators can keep up with the bank. Will banks, without this form of easy profits, certainly way it's been for the last several years, are they going to look to more traditional lending sources, right? They have not been lending. You know, Wells and J.P. Morgan, you know, are not nearly back to the levels that they were lending back in 08. So you need to have a crazy high credit score in order to be able to just get a simple mortgage. So these banks have stripped out all risk, right? Or do you really, like, I, I, I'm unlike you. I actually think there is some accountability that banks need to have for actually getting us into this mess for mm-hmm. this. And I think that is it. But I've actually worried that they've now swung the pendulum way too far to the other side, which is banks aren't willing to lend to anybody other than their great credit. So how do you actually get the economy stimulated? You actually need people who are risk takers and banks that are willing to lend to risk takers. Absolutely. And I do think you are starting to see some of that. It has clearly thawed quite a bit since the crisis. And you're seeing capital flow from other sources and non-traditional sources. Free markets are creative. They're flexible. And you're seeing, you know, VC businesses, you know, venture business being being funded by venture funds, all kinds of different lenders, uh, lending that the banks aren't willing to do. You're seeing BDCs, MES funds, and all kinds of other things pop up. I mean, it raises the question of if the banks aren't yeah. going to do it, who's Who going is? to? Uh-huh. But I, I think— And then how is how would, whoever is going to, mm-hmm. how are they going to be regulated? One of the things that's so great about free market economy in America is people are creative and where there's a need and there's something— attractive to be done uh, as a business person, people are going to fill that void. And you're seeing those voids being filled. All right. On that free market speech by Brett Barth, we will end here and we will uh, pick back up momentarily with Harry Wilson. You're on Breaking the Mold. Again, find us at BTMShow or email at btmshow at icloud.com. You're listening to Breaking the Mold. You can follow us on Twitter at BTM Show, or you can email us at btmshow at icloud.com. Now, more of Breaking the Mold. Welcome back to Breaking the Mold. It's Brett Barth and Evan Roth, and we are very excited to have on our show today Harry Wilson. Harry is a longtime friend and an incredibly accomplished man in in so many different ways, and we're thrilled to be able to spend some time kind of learning about him. For those who don't know Harry, he uh, is currently the founder of the MAVA Group, which is a turnaround specialist. Before he started that in 2011, he's been an amazing investor in Blackstone. He was at Silverpoint. He's been at Goldman and took some time to spend some time doing some civil service at the U.S. Treasury where he was responsible for the restructuring of GM. He then also uh, ran uh, unsuccessfully, but in a very close race in 2010 for the New York State Comptroller position. So we are, uh, we're thrilled here, Harry. Thank you. Thank you again for coming on Breaking the Mold. That's great to be with you guys. Any bio that you, know, you read about you starts with, you're the son and the grandson of Greek immigrants. It doesn't start with oh, the work that you did to rescue the auto industry. It starts with the fact that you are a son and grandson of a Greek immigrant. So does that define you? 
Absolutely. No, it's, it's, a, it's a great point. And frankly, I, you, you, I spend a lot of time thinking about my own bio. So if that's something that, that necessarily jumps out at you, but you're absolutely right. It's definitely uh, something that I, I think about um, and, and mention when I provide my background. Cause it really was a defining element of, of my life and everything from, you know, kind of how I think about uh, work ethic, family, uh, the career choices I've made, all really kind of emanate from my childhood and my parents and growing up in a small town in upstate New York. Hmm. See, and and Brett and I both, as as gyro eaters, um, certainly also support sort of the, the you know the the Greek tradition. But, but for those just tzatziki on mine, please. <laughs> for those those listeners who who aren't as aware as as we are about Greek culture, what what is it sort of what what's it like being Greek and being at home? What's what's it like around the dinner table? A lot of plates well, breaking. I mean, so you know, I'm sure it's different in different homes, but in our case, you know, so my mom came from Greece about 11 months before I was born, and spoke very little English. And my dad was born here, but both his parents were from Greece, and he was a you know a native, uh, well, fluent speaker. He learned as a child, and so we 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 spoke Greek at home growing up. And so that was definitely one part of uh, of kind of my upbringing. Everything from you know having knowing a different language, but also you know it gives you a a very clear sense of your cultural identity um, when I. I uh, was four. I didn't know any English yet, and my parents said, "Well, kindergarten do your way. You probably should probably learn some English." So they sent me to nursery school, and you know, at that age, you pick up languages pretty quickly. But it was—I um, I suspect, at some level, it was probably my first challenge, um, and uh, you know, and, and certainly I think played a played a role. Um, I think you know, a big part of it was just you know, kind of I think for like a lot of immigrant families, whether it's Greek or uh, Dominican or Vietnamese. Um, is really just uh, you know kind of having that 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 mindset of striving, working hard, coming from a modest background, and you know believing in the the, the, the American dream and what working hard and, and and pushing in this country can really uh, create for you and and life for yourself and your family. And I've definitely been the, the beneficiary of that, been very fortunate in that respect, and and uh, that I think definitely defined both my outlook on my career as well as my outlook on an interest in public service. So Harry, you, you've clearly been able to make both your parents very proud as a double Harvard graduate. Do you think that's still alive for immigrants today? If you were to flash forward 40 years to someone coming today, do you still think that's here in the United States for folks? It's a great question. I, you know, I, I actually spent a lot of time thinking about that. I believe so. I, I believe and there's lots of conflicting studies out there, as you guys have seen, I'm sure. Right? There's just something in the news in the last 24 hours about, um, yeah, from out of Harvard, a study that showed that the level of social mobility is as high today as it was 20 or 30 years ago, which is counter to the, to the general um, you know, conventional wisdom. But I, I generally, I do believe, um, I think it's, it's, I think the thing that's different for now from, you know, maybe when we were kids is that it is easier to stay on top if you grow up in a, uh, you know, wealthy family and you're more likely to go to a great school. You're more likely to have advantages as a result of that. And so it's easier to stay on top, I think. Um, but I, I do believe that the social mobility ladder for immigrants or anyone on the, um, you know, kind of lower end of the socioeconomic ladder, I think is, is still as prevalent today as it was, you know, 40 years ago. So you've you've got sort of that instilled in you as you're growing up, and now it's time to obviously you know bright, successful, you know, in in, in a small town, and able to you know to go to Harvard, which immigrant aside as a crowning achievement. But now you got to make some professional decisions. What what do you do you know after college, and you know how'd you make your choice? 
Sure. So I, I went through a, a really big sea change my senior year of college, where I had I've always been interested in, in public service and government service. And if you, if we had been talking, you know, I was a government major in college, and if we'd been talking, you know, sophomore year or something, I would have said, well, I'm going to go to law school, and I'll probably run for office at a young age, and you know, and and see see where that takes me. And um, I was part of a program at uh, at Harvard uh, that was affiliated with the Kennedy School called the Institute of Politics, and that program would take six people every semester and bring them in to teach a not-for-credit class to undergraduates and graduate students. It's a very cool program. Um, inevitably, those six people were people who just lost an election. <laughs> they'd lose an election. They'd come in for basically a sabbatical network, try to figure out the rest of their the next step in their lives, and offer back to the to the community, which was which was great, kind of win-win. Um, but I spent a lot of time with these folks, and I really came to feel that these were folks who, you know, generally speaking, had gone into public life for the right reasons. They wanted to help people. Um, um, they had um, spent 15, 20 years, whatever, in that position. They lost an election, and there was no backup plan. These folks didn't really have any marketable skills other than you know, becoming a lobbyist, which I never had any interest in doing. And uh, as a result, there they were, well into their lives, their kids getting ready to college, they had no savings, and uh, no real marketable skills. And as a kid who didn't have uh, a nest egg or anything to fall back on, I said, I'm not going to let that happen to me or my kids. And so I really... Um, and this was a revelation kind of, you know, late junior year, early senior year, which is a tough time to change your career plans. <laughs> so I started thinking about, okay, well, what should I be doing? And around that time, a guy I'd worked with on a campaign who was a student at the business school um, started talking about investment banking and a firm called Goldman Sachs, which I didn't had no idea what it was at the time. Uh, and that's how I got into the process, probably October of senior year, sort of learning about investment banking. But, you know, to make a long story short, I basically started, um, I, I decided I wanted to look more broadly at a business career, uh, and I really got a developed interest in finance, um, although I knew very little about it at the time, and that really led to, um, to my uh, joining, joining Goldman after graduation. Why do you think Goldman hired you? Uh, hiring mistake, probably. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, yeah, I'm sure that statistically they're going to have some mistakes, and you know, I squeaked in. I, mean, I, I think. I mean, I think that um, back then it was different now, but back then they would hire a lot of liberal arts graduates who had you know good academic records and uh, seemed to be hardworking and committed. And I think I think I had those elements. Um, I definitely also had you know a number of leadership posts. Um, I, I think it was, was present like five or six different organizations in college, and uh, I think that. I think that was that package, and I interviewed reasonably well, I guess, um, for a kid who didn't really know anything about the subject matter. Um, so it was, I think, the combination of all those led to you know, kind of my getting hired. It's kind of nice that you were able to switch gears later in your career and go back to public yeah. life and public service. Having been both a civil servant and a political candidate, are you glad you took the, the route you did in waiting to go into political life? Do you wish you had done it earlier? Do you wish you had never gone into it? And, and I guess, and, and I'll add one, one more thought while you're, you're you're coming up with your answer for that, which is, you know, reading, you know, this most recent kind of you know issue in Virginia where the governor and his first wife were being accused of, you know, taking contributions and using them in inappropriate ways. One mm-hmm. of the things that they talk about is that the wife, in particular felt like she was due, that they'd spent their entire life in civil service and they're surrounded by mm-hmm. all these wealthy people and that it was her right to be able to get a $100,000 piece of jewelry that, you know, Harry, you didn't have to, you know, you chose a path where you were able to go into kind of civil service without feeling like it was going to be a compromise financially. 
Right. Well, it, it's uh, yeah. Let me let me. I think it combine both of those questions. They're definitely uh, closely related, at least in my own kind of kind of thought process. I, I think there are two things. One was or maybe maybe even three things. One, you know, one I mentioned, you know, seeing these folks who had been very idealistic, like I was, um, and but had fallen on on you know kind of a tough spot and didn't have a fallback plan. So that was definitely something that weighed heavily in my thinking. I'll call that you know kind of downside mitigation. But but there are a couple other elements to it. One was I, I really think it's critical that people in public life have skills. That are outside of you know kind of the you know just getting elected and and pushing legislation. Um, you got to be able to bring something to the table. Now that could be as a business person, it could be as a doctor or as a teacher, um, you know, a, a police officer. It could be anything, but it's got to be some independent base of knowledge that you can add add to the debate. So you're an expert in something. Uh, I think that makes you a better public servant. I think that makes our country better. So so having that set of skills, and in my case, obviously a business set of skills, I thought was was critical. Um, to thinking about public life. And I think the third thing for me personally, uh, which is a little bit related to downside mitigation, but it's a little bit different, is you know, I anything I've wanted to do in my life, I always want to do in my own terms, and to really, and I am pretty, I, I remain idealistic even at 42, and so I really focused on okay, how do I make sure I have enough independence in anything I do to be able to kind of drive the right thing, and it certainly helps to have financial independence in public life. It helps because you can you know help facilitate your own uh, campaign. Uh, it helps because you don't need the job. I mean, a lot of these folks, people forget that a lot of these folks who are desperate to stay in office, they're desperate to stay in office because they need the job. Mm-hmm. And that just breeds a bad set of dynamics um, because then people will compromise on the right thing. And I, I never wanted to be in that position. I wanted to always, you know, again, they sound overly idealistic or even naive, but I always wanted to be in a position where I could always do the right thing and not feel like uh, I needed the uh, the job. Uh, you know, Mayor Bloomberg is in some ways a consummate example of that. And I think his leadership in a lot of areas, whether you agree with the policies or not, is is, you know, kind of a great example of what that independence can provide. Mm-hmm. And I think the you know, McDonald case is a sad, sad, you know, I, I read part of the indictment um, and uh, a lot of what talked about, uh, you know, the allegations around Mrs. McDonald's uh, uh, desires. And it's, you, you see that, right? You see people who are constantly exposed to wealthy people who, um, like you said, develop an entitlement mentality around that. And it's obviously wrong, um, but it's, it's something that pushes people down a slippery slope. And it's certainly better to never step on a slippery slope but it's also good to have the independence and not ever need to. Um, I think yeah. it's you know it's mutually reinforcing. Um, and so you know to me like I, you know that doesn't mean you have to be you know a successful business person or wealthy or whatever you get into politics. I think it it does mean you need to go in uh, with a set of expertise that's um, that adds value to the process to the public debate and uh, to be able to do it in a way that you're independent of the job um, because you want to be able to kind of be able, be able to drive good decisions. Your expertise came not just in business generally, but in a particular niche in terms of your ability to execute turnarounds, companies that are struggling and the biggest industry to struggle during your professional career, sort of the auto industry, owes a huge debt of thanks to you for the work that you did. Can you kind of talk us through a little bit about that experience, why you decided to do it, what it was like once you were there? 
so, you know, I, I had, um, over the course of my investment career, I'd, I'd, gradu- I'd always gravitated towards more complicated situations, usually troubled companies. Um, in a couple of the firms I worked at, that was a core focus of the work they did at uh, Clayton DeBlier and Rice and at Silverpoint. And at Blackstone, it was not a core focus, but I just, I, I pursued it a lot. And so it was, a, it was probably only 5 or 10% what the firm pursued, but it was a good chunk of the time that I spent. And I just, I just found it more intellectually interesting. It was more complicated. It was harder. You had a competitive advantage in many, many respects. Um, and uh, I personally developed, I thought, you know, a real kind of body of knowledge around both the financial element of the restructuring as well as the operating side of a restructuring, which was you know, relatively uh, unusual um, in that world. And so when, when the, the financial crisis hit, and it was, you know, it wasn't clear where the bottom was going to be. And a lot of smart people were forecasting a second Great Depression. I, I, I thought to myself, well, I should, you know, this is actually a great opportunity for me to blend my skill set with my interest in public service. And, you know, at that time, as you know, the Treasury was wading in heavily into both the financials, financials and the autos. Um, I had this, you know, very negative uh, kind of vision of all these bureaucrats who didn't really understand anything about the businesses uh, throwing tens of billions or hundreds of billions of dollars at the problem. And, and essentially exacerbating the issues as opposed to fixing the issues, and I thought I could make a difference. And so my first thought was, okay, how do I how do I even get in the door? Um, given I'm a Republican who uh, was not at all involved in the Obama campaign and didn't really know anyone active uh, at the campaign at the senior levels. Um, Around that time, so mid-January of 2009, Steve Ratner uh, was rumored in the Times to be uh, the quote-unquote Karzar. And I'd never met Steve, um, didn't know him, but I had friends who worked at his firm, so I knew the email address format. And so I sent him a blind uh, cold email. And basically, <laughs> so you, you like, got a job through a cold call. A one-page email and said, uh, here's, you know, here's who I am. Here's my background. I'm interested in helping. Uh, here's why I'm interested in helping. Uh, I said, by the way, I'm a lifelong Republican and a fiscal conservative, and if that's a problem for you, I totally understand. Um, but um, but if you're interested in talking, you know, please call. And I had no idea if he'd even read the email, uh, much less get back to me. But I sent it on a weekend, and by, by Monday, his assistant reached out to me to uh, schedule a lunch. Uh, we had lunch on Wednesday, and we hit it off. And it, we, we came at it from very different perspectives. He was a, Steve's a lifelong Democrat who had um, an interest uh, in serving the administration, but uh, really wanted to uh, have the right role. And in my case, I was somebody really no interest in serving the administration, but really thought our country needed um, – as much talent as it can get, and thought I, I really thought the problems with the autos were fixable if if the administration was willing to make tough decisions. Uh, so it was a, we we really hit it off and decided to do it together. We added two other partners to kind of create the leadership team of what became known as uh, the auto team within Treasury. Um, and that's how it all that's how it all began. Would you recommend other folks to do public service like that? and or be willing to work for the other party. I think it's very rare that you'd see someone who say, I'm a Republican, I'm a lifelong conservative, but I'm willing to work, I'm going to say 80 hours a week, but it was probably 100 hours a week for weeks and weeks and weeks to help the Obama administration succeed in the, in the auto turnaround. So um, I, I think taking those two questions, I think definitely we need more talent in public service. I mean, I think you look at the problems we have as a country or as a state or whatever, whatever level of government you want to look at, none of them are unsolvable. Um, they're just we don't have the either the political will or the talent in many cases to drive to a solution. Um, if you look at where American industry was 30 years ago, it was, in my opinion, a much more sorry state than than public governance today um, in, in you know in, in, in public life. But we had you know real leaders and we had a corporate 
governance system that fostered dynamic change and everything from leverage buyouts to hostile takeovers to you know activist campaigns and we don't have any of those elements in public life uh, and I think it's like I said, it's partly a political will issue and partly a uh, talent issue so I think we we desperately need a way to get more and more talent in public life I think the problem right now is that it's in many ways going the opposite way the barriers to entry or the sort of the, the deterrence to people with talent is pretty high people look at it and say why would I go through all that why would I put myself through that why would I put my family through that and all the elements of what that is like you know the, the all the attacks and the uh, whether it's on cable news or on the internet or whatever um, it's become more pronounced and more negative and uh, less accountability because you know any random blogger can put up something that's not true about somebody um, and so I think we're actually seeing you know generally speaking less interest in people going into public life um, I think one way to reverse it uh, is something along the lines of the auto team which is to have special SWAT teams for short periods of time um, you know you might not be able to get you know um, superstar X to come to government for 10 years but maybe he or she would do a special project for six or 12 months and that I think would be a way to get more talent into public life um, and I definitely think you know some of these some some problems are inherently ideological um, obviously certain social issues and things you know things like that that certain people just won't be able to get comfortable with the other side but some of these uh, many of these issues facing government today are really issues of execution not about ideology um, there really wasn't a substantive argument um, within Congress about uh, rescuing the auto companies there was a lot of people after the fact who've attacked it <laughs> mm-hmm. but at the time there really wasn't a uh, consensus uh, of, of any size against rescuing the auto companies and so really this was an execution question of how do you get a really complicated or two, two really complicated turnarounds done in a very short period of time um, and that's why I think and you look at I mean you know we, for example people take take Medicare or, or even Obamacare people can disagree philosophically um, on the policy elements to it, for sure, and, and people do. But there are a lot of execution elements, the website being the most mm-hmm, kind of recent mm-hmm. example, where you know, these things should just be done well if, if they're going to be done. Um, I don't. I don't believe the. You know, some people would argue that Republicans want to see government fail so that government does less. I don't believe that. I think most governments, most Republicans, want to see less government, but what government remains should be done well. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's policing or schools or what have you. Um, obviously, there's there's some people who disagree with that, but I think the vast majority of the party feels that way. So, um, so anyway, so I think it comes down to talent and getting more talent in the public life. Well, with, with with that outlook, which is potentially optimistic, but feels bleak in terms of who, where we currently stand and what people are willing to do. And as somebody who is a fiscal expert, we've got massive problems at the federal level, at the state level, at municipal levels. And it's something that you're, as a modern day Renaissance man, you know, an expert in that topic as well. What is your, you know, are you confident in the country and the government that your children and grandchildren are going to be living in generations from now? Are we going to figure this out as a country, the system and, and how to solve Really, I'll, I'll start with just the fiscal issues. Yeah. No, it's definitely something I worry about a lot. Um, and I definitely think that this is, you know, our, our kids, unfortunately, um, stand a, a very realistic probability of being the first generation of Americans to be worse off than their parents, which is, I think, just absolutely horrible. And one of the things that really motivated me to run for office in 2010, uh, that's just absolutely uh, wrong and not something that any of us should be willing to live with. Um, uh, so, so I do think right now the prospects are concerning, and in part because we show little leadership in public life to try to address them. But I think where I'm inherently optimistic, 
uh, is that we have always, as a country, always found new leadership to kind of come forward at times like this. I mean, think about how bleak the situation was in 1979. And whether you're a Democrat or Republican, um, certainly things got a lot better after the election in 1980. Some people obviously would disagree with the policy direction, but in terms of the direction of the country, um, I think it clearly got a lot better. I'm obviously a little biased on that issue. <laughs> but I think, and I think, you know, we have a tendency as a nation uh, or to take 1931 <laughs> as, an, as an, you know, another example. Um, so we have a tendency as a nation when, when things are, are darkest to turn to leadership that is right for the time. Uh, we've done it several I mean, you know, the Civil War, obviously, Abraham Lincoln. We've done it several times in the past. I think we'll do it again. Um, I don't know where that is or when that is, but I, I, I believe we'll kind of, you know, find, we'll, we'll, we'll ultimately turn to leadership as want to take the, the right steps. And I think, you know, a big part of it is so many people in public life have this view that, well, we can't tell people bad news or we can only offer benefits because no one wants to, um, no one wants to see their benefits cut or no one wants to see any changes. And look, it's true that people obviously would prefer to get um, uh, things that are better than things that are worse. But I, I think at the end of the day, it's because people don't have the facts, and the average person is too busy trying to keep food on the table to spend a lot of time reading The Economist or you know, delving into budget details. And so I think it's incumbent upon our leaders to make the case to, to people that, well, here are the trade-offs we're facing. There is no free lunch. In order to get to a better place for you and your kids, here are the things we have to do. Um, and that's an inherently more sophisticated dialogue. Um, Part of the problem is transcending, you know, a a, um, a series of medium media that are becoming less sophisticated. You know, a 140 character argument on Twitter is less sophisticated than cable news, and cable news is less sophisticated than an NPR interview. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, we, but we have to figure out a way as a society to to, to elevate the dialogue. I think we will. Uh, I don't know what that path is yet, but that's that's we need to both drive that, you know, kind of more sophisticated dialogue and turn to leadership as well to kind of help. Them willing to take us through some tough choices. You make a very passion. I I am right now ready to go out and and look for an opportunity to give back. And you mean, it's just you you say it in a way that really gets people excited. My question, though, is the choice you made after running unsuccessfully for office was to go back into kind of the things that, you know, you'd been doing before that, you know, which was you served on Yahoo's board. You still serve on a couple other public companies' boards. You started a, a, you know, a turnaround merchant bank. Why at that time do you not say my real ability to kind of make a difference, to make sure that my kids and my grandkids do have a better country is, you know, to recruit other great people or to recommit and look for other ways for you to provide kind of, you know, the, your your civil service? Great question. It's something I agonized over and thought about a lot, and I still think about it a lot. And I'll, I'll tell you how I reconciled it in my head, and, and you feel free to tell me you thought I made a bad decision. But <laughs> but I uh, I thought about it this way. I thought, you know, to me, you know, what, what's, what, what, what makes a successful life? What's a meaningful life? And, and I've spent a lot of time, particularly over the last uh, six, seven years, um, thinking about that for me personally. And, and to me, it comes down to three simple things. is taking my most um, uh, valuable skills, doing something I love to do in the service of, of others. And um, and for me, those valuable skills are fixing really screwed up situations and, and really complicated problems. I love to do it. I think I'm reasonably good at it. Um, it's incredibly rewarding personally uh, and fulfilling. Um, and applying those to applying that problem solving skill set to complicated situations. Um, but if you look at the stuff we've done at Mava, it's intentionally been things that are 
um, focused on exactly that. So, you know, our first client is a company called YRC Worldwide. It's a very large trucking business. When we first got involved, it was on the verge of liquidation and would have wiped out 30,000 jobs. And so we were able to patch together a deal that first kept it alive, then brought in a new management team. Uh, the company's quadrupled EBITDA in the last two years. We'll fix this company. We will um, have saved 32,000 jobs and we'll play a valuable service. I think a lot more than most, say, congressmen do in their careers. And <laughs> it's so, still, so it's I still. I don't, I don't mean as a cheap shot. I mean, it's like literally, I, that's how I think about it. Like, that's what motivates me. We, there are things we turned down that were much more lucrative that were not as transformational because it didn't feel like they were really kind of consistent with the charter we're trying to build here at MAVA. And so, so the way I think about for my own personal life is there were, there over the next X number of years of my life, there will be lots of challenges to, to take on, and I want to be disciplined about focusing on the challenges that I think are the most meaningful, the most interesting, and where I can make the biggest difference. And some will be in the public sector, and some will be in the private sector. As a first-time amateur journalist, I wouldn't be doing my job if I let you off the hook and didn't say, so are you ever going to run again? I would say this. I'd say, like, you know, I, do I think that I, um, if I found the right opportunity where I thought I had a good shot at winning, and I thought if I won, I could make a big difference, I would definitely do it. Um, and obviously, if it was you know, right time for my family and all the other pieces fell in place, but but you know, I, I would you know I would be excited to do it again for the right opportunity. Um, the the thing that I'm much more realistic about now than the first time I ran is as a Republican in New York, it's hard. Um, and um, it doesn't mean you can't win. It doesn't mean it's. It doesn't mean not to do it. It's just hard. And mm-hmm. so you know, in 2010, when when I ran, um, no one knew who I was when I started. Uh, I couldn't even get. You know, my the most basic phone calls returned as I was trying to kind of build a campaign, um, and we got from that point to the verge of victory, almost won. Um, had uh, the had the top to take it up in such a landslide, in, in in favor of Governor Cuomo, I very like very likely could have won. Um, and uh, but it, what it taught me was that. Not enough people pay attention. It's not, I mean, as, as an example, my last poll, the week before the election, I had 30% name ID, which was up from zero. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and that 30% was um, two to one Democratic split, just like the state is. But within that 30%, I had, a, I had a 25-point lead. So even though it was two to one Democratic, I had a massive lead for people who had followed the campaign and had some name recognition, some recognition of my name. But the problem was the other 70% that I had not penetrated voted party line. And if you look at the outcome of the election, it basically does it tracks exactly to the outcome of the race. And so on the one hand, you know, the glass half full view of that is if I had thirty five or forty percent name ID, I likely would have won. The glass half empty is is it's really hard to break through. because uh, we spent, you know, a fair amount of money and traveled the state relentlessly and worked really hard and we still only got through this thirty percent of of the of the voting public. Um, but that's all, you know, kind of knowledge I now have that if I if I do run again I'll I'll be, you know, I'll I'll know what our limitations were in 2010 and do our best to correct those. Well, well Harry, all, all of us here at Breaking the Mo will be following your campaign closely, maybe even some of us working on your campaign. So we are we are hopeful <laughs> that at some point that does, it does happen again. Harry Wilson, thank you so much for joining us here on Breaking the Mold. Appreciate thank the Thank you, guys. Great to be Absolutely. with you. Thanks for joining Thanks, us. Thanks, Harry. Breaking the Mold wants your feedback. Please visit our iTunes show page and tell us what you think about the show. Now, back to your hosts. Welcome back to Breaking the Mold. That was a uh, fascinating give and take with Harry Wilson. 
30 minutes, unfortunately, is not long enough when you think about the career arc that he has had. He, he can talk in depth about everything from politics, business, life, life in Greece. But I think we get a nice... A gyros? Nice or, what did you is call them? Gyros, gyros or gyros? I don't know. I don't know. He, so, Harry, so w- one thing we didn't share on, on that portion is that uh, Harry and Brett um, were in the same training program at Goldman. and. Mm-hmm. Be curious a little bit just sort of how you think things have changed for Harry or whether, how about this, the day, you know, you guys are all sitting around looking at each other in the training class. You're like, yep, yeah, Harry's going to be the one who's going to go off and, you know, do this, had this kind of career, you know, run for politics. Oh, it's totally obvious. As, as he mentioned, you know, he was a uh, political success as an undergraduate at Harvard. There were no shortage of Harvard grads at Goldman Sachs. And so Harry's reputation preceded him. Uh-huh. He's also... Uh, Again, maybe it's the immigrant roots, but, you know, one of the most, you know, earnest, genuine people you'll meet. And mm-hmm. so you you could tell he thought he was – there was going to be more and bigger for Harry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had already started that long before he, I had met him. And clearly he's, he's, he's continued on that arc. Did he inspire others? I mean, if you think about what that training class looks like, I can't imagine there's that many people that said, yeah, you know what I want to achieve in my life is I want to be successful enough that I can – you know, go into, you know, public well, service. Let me tell you my, my personal story and as it relates to lots of us who've known him from 20-plus years ago. So I generally have a dislike for the American political process. There's very few politicians I've ever met that I'd ever like to support, and I don't consider myself too much of a partisan. Mm-hmm. I'd also say there's lots of those policies that Harry believes in that I disagree with. But myself and many of us that have known Harry for years and years and years were happy to work on his behalf and to make those phone calls and to ask people to help raise money for him because of, as he, as he pointed out, there's too few people who are talented and honest mm-hmm. and hardworking and problem solving uh, that want to serve our country. And when someone like that comes along, um, you do want to uh, work your hardest to help see them succeed. And you also get a good look at uh, the political process. And, and Harry uh, outlined it well. At the end of the day, it's no different than running for, you know, uh, president of your junior class in high school. It's who's got the most posters and the prettiest posters, and that's all about money. And Harry's obviously been very successful, and Harry uh, contributed, I'm sure, as much as uh, his wife would let him um, uh, towards that campaign. Um, and we raised quite a bit more, but New York's a big state, and it, it's that name recognition. Yeah was the key, as he highlighted, and you get that through money and advertisements. But you also think it's 2010, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's you're, you're a year or two off of, you know, the great collapse here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as we talked about, you know, when we started this show, you know, about Banks' role in that. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he had Goldman Sachs and Blackstone, you know, on his resume were not good things. I'm it not sure they're, they're not good it things now. Hurt. It definitely but, but hurt. But I mean, would he have ever thought, you know, what? like that is a – you look at that resume. That's a charmed resume to be able to run for office, right? He's like Harvard. He's got Goldman on his resume. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it actually stops and he can't actually talk about it. He has to reemphasize his roots. But he's different than your average Goldman guy in a lot of, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And obviously we talked, we, talked, we talked a little bit about that earlier. But he He's from upstate New York. He's from the, the town he's from was an auto town. He's from immigrant parents, blue collar, worked his way up. And by the way, upstate does tend to lean a little bit more conservative. And he worked in a Democratic administration, right? Mm-hmm, I just mm-hmm. think I think about the times and his campaign. You know, part of the 08 presidential campaign was we didn't want the partisanship. We wanted change. And then for two more years, 
We didn't get the change. We still had partisanship. And now you've got a guy who's a Republican but has got blue-collar roots, who's got professional expertise, who ran on a platform as controller about turning around the finances of the state, not on partisanship. And he had proved it through working as a turnaround expert right. as a Republican in very successfully in a Democratic administration. So I actually think separate of that he was painted as a hedge fund yeah, guy and a Goldman yeah, guy. Yeah. It's optics. He had, he had a story that was opposite of that. He just couldn't get that story out to enough people right. and in a year where the it was a landslide in New York State for Democrats. Right. All right. Well, thank you very much. We are excited to be able to uh, have a show every two weeks here. And this was a special one with Harry Wilson. And we will see you back here very soon. Don't forget to follow us at BTM Show and email us any comments, positive or other positive comments, at btmshow at icloud.com. For Breaking the Mold, I'm Evan Roth. And I'm Brett Barth. been listening to Breaking the Mold. Let us know what you think of the show via Twitter at BTM Show, through email at btmshow at icloud.com, and at our iTunes show page. Breaking the Mold is recorded at the Hangar Studios in New York City.